0: Welcome to Behind the Knife's AbSight
1: Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated AbSight Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, BehindTheKnife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps, which are due out in December. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day, and dominate the site. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligasure Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the Tac Motorized Fixation Device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Sonocision curved jaw cordless ultrasonic device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Okay, here we go, behind the knife, Absite review the topic today is parathyroid. So let's jump right into it with some anatomy and physiology. So John, parathyroid glands, let's talk about their relationship to the recurrent laryngeal nerve as well as the embryologic origin. I'm talking about the superior as well as the inferior.
0: Yep, so clinically relevant as well as for the absite, the superior parathyroid glands are posterior and lateral to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And from an embryology standpoint, they originate from the fourth pharyngeal pouch. The inferior parathyroid glands are anterior and medial to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. They originate from the third pharyngeal pouch. The inferior glands could also be more variable in location. And just to note, as we're talking about the third pharyngeal pouch, the thymus also migrates with the third pharyngeal pouch.
1: Yeah, I think what's clinically significant there is, you know, it's a little bit backwards, like the superior parathyroids are from the fourth pharyngeal uh, pouch and the inferior from the third. But the thing to remember is the inferiors have to migrate farther. So that's why they have a more variable location. And again, that, that relationship to the recurrent laryngeal nerve is, is very important to know as well. So Kevin, blood supply to the parathyroid glands. Okay. So this is the inferior thyroid artery,
2: which if you remember, comes off the thyrocervical trunk. And this is the blood supply to all four
1: glands in 80% of cases. Okay. John, uh, what cells re- release parathyroid hormone, and what is the stimulus to do so?
0: The parathyroid hormone is released from chief cells in the parathyroid in response
1: to low calcium levels. Yeah, so again, with any of these endocrine chapters, it's really important to understand the physiology. Uh, I mean, what the organs actually do, as well as the feedback mechanisms, because that feeds into the pathology and having an understanding of that is going to help you answer some questions. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, so Kevin, actions of the parathyroid hormone, let's, you know, they act primarily on the bone and on the kidney. So what do they do? So for the bone, it indirectly stimulates osteoclasts for
2: resorption of calcium and phosphate. And in the kidneys, it stimulates resorption of calcium, and inhibits the resorption of phosphate and bicarbonate. Always remember
1: that PTH is the phosphate trashing hormone. Yeah, great. So it trashes phosphate, but it is also stimulated to be released in in low calcium. You know, its overall goal is to increase calcium levels in the bloodstream. And in addition to the mechanisms that you mentioned, it also stimulates the conversion of vitamin D to its active form through one alpha hydroxylase and this stimulates absorption of calcium and phosphate in the gut so that's also important it does a lot of things uh, but understanding those feedback mechanisms are, are going to be uh, key to answering questions on the website so john how about calcitonin what is calcitonin's effect on calcium homeostasis yeah calcitonin
0: is released from perifollicular c cells in the thyroid into response to high calcium think calcitonin tones down calcium And the bone, it indirectly inhibits osteoclast bone resorption. And the kidney inhibits resorption
1: of calcium and phosphate. Okay, great. So let's talk about, uh, that's the physiology. So let's move into a little pathophysiology. And again, understanding how these work is going to help you understand how things go wrong. And and we do have a good figure in the book that that explains uh, some of the things we just talked about, about parathyroid hormone and calcium effect on, or, or I'm sorry, parathyroid hormone and calcitonin's effect on calcium homeostasis. And a lot of times it's better to visualize those things and it, it, to, to talk through because it can become quite confusing. But moving on to uh, pathophysiology, so hyperparathyroidism. So what's the most common cause of hypercalcemia in the outpatient and inpatient settings, Kevin?
2: So in the outpatient setting, it's primary hyperparathyroidism and in the inpatient setting,
1: it's malignancy. Great. Outpatient primary hyperparathyroidism and inpatient think malignancy. John, what's the mechanism of hypercalcemia due to malignancy? Yeah, you need to think about the production of PTH-related protein,
0: and this is common in squamous cell lung cancer as well as breast cancer. And less commonly, hypercalcemia and malignancy can can be from lytic bone lesions.
1: Yeah, that's important to remember that, again, that parathyroid hormone-related protein, a lot of times you would think it's due to calcium or to bone reabsorption or lytic bone lesions, but it's really that that, that parathyroid-like protein and thinks whey cell lung cancer and breast cancer when you see that. John, what is the uh, presentation and management of uh, hypercalcemic crisis then? Yeah, so the presentation of this is nausea,
0: vomiting, abdominal pain, constipation, weight loss, bone pain, fatigue, weakness, and neurologic changes. The management of this all stems around fluid resuscitation, such as normal saline, around 300 milliliters an hour.
1: And once you're euvolemic, you consider Lasix. Okay. So you said normal saline. Yeah, I agree. 300 an hour, so a high rate for hypercalcemic crisis. But why not lactated ringers? It's controversial, but LR contains calcium. Yeah. Okay. So best to avoid lactate ringers, especially on exams for a crisis. Normal saline, three in an hour, and then the diuretics once you're Or Kevin, what are the three different types of hyperparathyroidism? Okay. So this is one of those things that you kind of have to review every once in a while. So the primary
2: hyperparathyroidism is the most common, and this is related to abnormal gland function or excess PTH. Then you have your secondary hyperparathyroidism, and this is uh, excess PTH secretion due to hypocalcemia, usually related to renal failure. And then you have your tertiary hyperparathyroidism in post-renal transplant patients. And so they've had long standing parathyroid stimulation from preoperative hypocalcemia results in autonomous PTH secretion once they have that new kidney.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, good description. Primary, secondary, tertiary, hyperparathyroidism. How about the most common cause of, say, primary hyperparathyroidism? The most common
2: cause is from an adenoma. Um, 80 to 90% will be a single adenoma versus 2 to 5% will be a
1: multiglandular adenoma. Yeah, exactly. So most commonly an adenoma, most commonly a single adenoma, but certainly there can be also hyperplasia about 10 to 15% of the time. Parathyroid cancer uh, can re- result in primary hyperparathyroidism, and uh, there's a, a much higher prevalence in MEN1 and MEN2A uh, as well. Uh, so, John, uh, laboratory test. What do we use uh, to work up and diagnose hyperparathyroidism?
0: So, obviously, you're going to check a serum calcium level, which will be elevated in hyperparathyroidism. You also want to check a serum phosphate, which will be decreased, except for patients who have renal failure, and they can't waste that uh, phosphate. You want to check a serum PTH, which will be elevated. The normal level is between 5 and 40. Serum chloride to phosphate ratio will be greater than 33. And also, you want to check a 24-hour urine calcium, and that would also be elevated. If, it's, if that 24-hour urine calcium is less than 100, you want to consider familial hypocalceric hypercalcemia.
1: Yeah, of course, never want to forget about familiar hypocalceric hypercalcemia. And of that, what is the most reliable way to diagnose hyperparathyroidism and which test is most frequently used? Great question, Jason. That would be your chloride-phosphate ratio. Okay, great. And so, you know, we're dealing with patients that most commonly are incidentally found to be hypercalcemic, and we're trying to figure out why. Again, like Kevin said, most likely we're dealing with an adenoma. So now we're trying to work that out. So let's say, you know, we're thinking that maybe there's an adenoma. So what studies can we be used to localize this adenoma, Kevin? So yeah, there's
2: a, a few imaging modalities, ultrasound, Sestamibi scans, and a 4D CT scan. But generally, you're going to start with a Sestamibi scan plus an ultrasound, which allows for evaluation
1: of concurrent thyroid disease. Okay. Is there anything else? Anything, say, more invasive?
2: Yeah, so you can do angiography with venous sampling for PTH gradients. This is typically
1: reserved for reoperative or otherwise complex patients. Great. Yeah, so for most people, you're going to start with a Cestamibi scan and an ultrasound. There are institutions that are going to that 4D CT, but I, I still think probably the best answer on the outside would be Cestamibi and ultrasound. What's the management of hyperparathyroidism uh, and uh, who should undergo a parathyroidectomy? John. Yeah, so parathyroidectomy
0: is the only long-term treatment for hyperparathyroidism. Uh, you can consider a mild or single-gland th- parathyroidectomy for localized disease on your preoperative workup, or you may need to do a three-and-a-half or four-gland expiration uh, for nine
1: localized disease. Yeah, so I think what you're saying there is we're dealing with symptomatic patients, so all these symptomatic patients should undergo some form of parathyroidectomy, whether that's a single adenoma. You do your localization, and you can confirm that interoperatively and, and get your drop, and then you're done. For multiple adenomas or uh, hyperplasia, then you, you can talk about doing a you know a subtotal or three and a half and four gland with reimplantation. It's getting a little bit into the weeds there, but yeah, I, I think a good general rule there is definitely symptomatic patients should undergo a parathyroidectomy, and it gets obviously more complicated uh, from there. So, Kevin, let's talk about asymptomatic patients. Are there any criteria for when asymptomatic patients with just an incidental to be hyperparathyroid, when they should undergo a parathyroidectomy? So yeah, if their serum calcium is greater than
2: 1 milligram per deciliter above normal, that would be an indication. Also, if they have any renal disease, such as nephrolithiasis or hypercalciuria, or if they have a decreased creatinine clearance, GFR less than 60. Also, if they have any bone loss, if they have evidence of osteoporosis with a T-score less than 2.5, negative 2.5, or if they're really young. So if their age is less than 50 or they have poor access to care, follow up, these would all be reasons uh, to do a parathyroidectomy.
1: Yeah, so basically any sequela of having a high parathyroid hormone, it seems like you're just looking for an excuse to do it. But yeah, those are the well-established criteria that would make asymptomatic patients meet the criteria for parathyroidectomy. Interoperatively, but we mentioned it briefly, but uh, John, how would you confirm that you had resection? You had adequate interoperative resection, of a parathyroid adenoma, how do you confirm that intraoperatively?
0: Yeah, you do an intraoperative PTH. So you use a dual criteria, which is the most sensitive. So you need to draw a PTH prior to the start of the operation. But what you're looking for after you remove the adenoma, you get a 50% drop from the pre-incision value at 10 minutes uh, after the resection, and that 10-minute value should be close to normal.
1: Okay, excellent. Yep, you're looking for that 50% drop in 10 minutes intraoperatively. Kevin, how do you treat multi-gland parathyroid
2: disease? To so briefly mention this, but you can do a three-and-a-half or four-gland parathyroidectomy with a re-implantation into the SCM or brachioradialis. Okay.
1: And staying with Kevin there, so you, you talked earlier about secondary hyperparathyroidism. Remind us quickly what that is and uh, what the management is. So that's when you have uh, hypocalcemia
2: uh, from your renal failure, and so you're having excess PTH secretion. And so, really, you can treat this just with calcium and vitamin D supplements, you know, a quote-unquote renal
1: diet and phosphate binders. Okay. John, tertiary hyperparathyroidism. So, this is a, once you have that long-standing kidney disease, you know, maybe you get a kidney transplant, and now your parathyroids are all amped up, and they start you know, pr- producing excess PTH. So, what's the management for tertiary hyperparathyroidism? Yeah, you would go to a three-and-a-half or four-glam parathyroidectomy with autotransplantation. Okay, great. Kevin, parathyroid carcinoma. So in what patients would you be concerned for parathyroid cancer, and how do you uh, approach that? Yeah,
2: so this is a very rare form of uh, primary hyperparathyroidism. They're going to have very high levels of calcium, like greater than 14 milligrams per deciliter. They may have a palpable neck mass. You're going to evaluate them the same way with a neck ultrasound and a EB scan, and the management of this is an in-block resection, and may require resection of the ipsilateral thyroid. And then if you have evidence of lymph node involvement, you want to do a
1: ipsilateral neck dissection. Okay, what about, you know, bad situation, you have recurrence or metastasis of, of an aggressive parathyroid carcinoma? Yeah, so you can do
2: palliative surgery and use some calcium-lowering drugs such as bisphosphonates or calcium mimetics, and then chemo and radiation therapy, unfortunately, are rarely effective. Yeah, it's you're in a bad situation
1: there. Uh, Okay, so let's move on to our quick hits for the day. So, John, a uh, a patient with a high normal range serum calcium and elevated parathyroid hormone with evidence of bone loss. What's the diagnosis?
0: Yeah, so this is normal calcemic hyperparathyroidism, but it's early primary hyperparathyroidism. And you would do surgery if it's symptomatic. Okay. Kevin, electrolyte disturbances found with hyperparathyroidism.
2: You can see hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, PTH results, and bicarb excretion from the kidney. And you also see hypophosphatemia with significant renal impairment,
1: phosphate may be elevated. Okay, and John? So you have a patient with an elevated parathyroid hormone, elevated calcium, and low urinary calcium. What's the diagnosis and management?
0: Yeah, this is the benign familial hypocalceric hypercalcemia, uh,
1: and the treatment for this is observation. Okay, Kevin. Surgical treatment of primary hyperparathyroidism in a patient with MEN1 or MEN2A. So this would be
2: the three-and-a-half or four-gland resection of auto transplant and the thymectomy.
1: Okay. And what's important to remember there and you have to watch for is there's frequently with ectopic and extranumerary uh, glands. So you have to watch for those with that as well. John, doing a next exploration for hyperparathyroidism, you find three normal glands and cannot identify a superior gland. Where should you look next?
0: Yeah, the next spot you should look is the retroesophageal space, and then you want to go to the carotid sheath
1: if you can't find it. Okay, great. So, again, we're thinking about where is the superior gland if we can't find it? And that's most commonly, as you say, the retroesophageal space or the carotid sheath. Now, Kevin, alternatively, you're doing your neck exploration, find three normal glands, but this time you can't identify that inferior gland. So where should you look for that? You can look in the ipsilateral
2: side of the mediastinal thymus, and you should also consider intrathyroid gland.
1: Yeah, so remember that that inferior thyroid gland had to travel further during embryology, so it has a more variable location, but those are absolutely the right places to look. Most commonly, the thymus and consideration of an intra-thyroid gland, which to drop ultrasound could be helpful there. So let's say, John, you identify, this time you identify four normal-appearing glands, but your intraoperative PTH remains elevated.
0: Yeah, you need to consider a hypersecreting supernumerary parathyroid gland and Once again, this is most commonly located in the thymus, and you would, if you are concerned that it is isn't the thymus, you
1: perform a thymectomy. Yeah, these can be very uh, frustrating and challenging, and, and sometimes it even re- requires you to close and, and do more localizing tests and, and coming back and fighting another day, so that can be very challenging. Kevin, what's the most common location of a missed gland? That would be the normal anatomic position. Right. It's a little bit of a trick question, but sometimes they ask that. If you, if you, if you can't find it, um, the most common place is it's in the right place. You're just missing it. Uh, John, what's the most common location of an ectopic gland? Yep. So once again, the thymus. Okay. Yep. Thymus is the most uh, common location, which is the reason for that recommendation to perform a thymectomy sometimes if you can't find it. Okay. That does it for our quick hits, and that does it for our review of parathyroid for the absite. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 AbSite. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the AbSite.